0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the Coordinator of Public Programs, and we're happy to see you all here this evening. Um, I want to point out to you that on the table back there is a copy of our new, um, our newsletter for March and April, so we encourage you to pick those up so you'll know what's coming up in um, the next few months. There are also program flyers as well. Um, we're really pleased this evening to welcome Dr. Maricela Gomez here to um, to the Pratt. Um, she is a community activist, a physician, a health professional, and she received three degrees from Johns Hopkins University: a PhD, an MD, and an MPH. Very impressive. <laughs> During the years that she was studying at Hopkins, she observed the developments in East Baltimore around the hospital, and she writes about those developments in her new book, Race, Class, Power, and Organizing in East Baltimore. And she's going to be um, presenting, as you can see, a PowerPoint presentation here this evening. So welcome, Dr. Gomez.
1: Good evening. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm just sitting there reflecting that this is the pole room. And I gave me a moment of pause to recognize that, uh, that writing is important. Action is important and writing is important as well, especially as another uh, tool for change because that's certainly what I see writing writing as. Uh, so tonight we're going to talk a little bit about uh, this book, Race, Class, Power, and Organizing in East Baltimore. Uh, I wanted to have more of an interactive process. I've been talking a lot about the book in the last few weeks, and I feel like it's been a lot of me talking. You know, and that's all good. You know. Uh, because there's this book to talk about. But I also recognize that um, there's a lot of uh, uh, wisdom in the community. There's a lot of wisdom uh, that we all have because we all participate in communities. We, we live in communities. And so we all have uh, some knowledge and some understanding as to how we would want to see community building occurs occur if it was happening in our community so i'd like to try and stop myself and once i get talking sometimes i can't stop um but i'm really going to try and stop myself at 30 minutes uh and and then try to really and, and answer questions but but ask you to be more reflective in your questions and and perhaps use your own wisdom uh in asking the questions, um, you know they say a question already has the answer in it, uh, if it 's a wise question, and I think that's true yeah. so the Q and A is going to be a q and A for all of us not I'm not just going to be the one answering the questions because i 'm going to be doing a whole lot of talking for the first thirty minutes so i couldn't decide if I wanted to do PowerPoint or just talk. Um, I'm going to use a PowerPoint because I think it's helpful. It also keeps me focused. um, So maybe it'll do more of that than anything. Uh, And also there's some really good images that I think can can bring all of us together on the same page. Uh, And there are a couple tables in there because the tables help to summarize a lot of the information that is in the book uh, and uh, a couple maps so we can orient to the space of what we're talking about tonight. So, the second title of the book, you know, nowadays every every book has two titles. Uh, so the second title of the book is uh, Rebuilding Abandoned Communities in America. So the first part is Race, Class, Power, and Organizing in East Baltimore. And, and what race, class, power, and organizing in East Baltimore has to do about rebuilding communities in America. So... I'm I'm stuck right here, I guess. Um, so these images here, I'm not going to explain them initially. A couple of them are from the cover of the book. Uh, I think as we go through the presentation, it will become clear uh, why these images are there. I have a similar image uh, or set of images at, as at the very end of the presentation. And I think it'll be clear what these images have to do. I also have images in here of nature and what I've learned is that as people doing activist work and work around social justice and change we become very caught up in everything we think everything is important so I, I have nature slides in all my presentations no matter where I go and it's an opportunity for us to all to stop and breathe and come back to ourselves to our, to our root rootedness so it just gives you that huh? So race, class, power, organizing, these are factors that affect community building. So this is basically, this book really uses this as a framework as to how we rebuild communities. Um, Race and class is a structure of the United States. It's it's what the country, um, unfortunately, was uh, built upon, unfortunately, racism and classism. Um, and the race and class has basically set up a, a hierarchy, a structure of power in this country, and therefore that structure determines whatever we do. It affects every single system in this country, and therefore, of course, it's going to affect development and rebuilding as well, right? Um, so this is why race and class is a big part. Um, and in the project, that we're going to projects we'll talk about. Race and class are big factors that determine how this project rolled out. Um, public-private partnerships is a big issue in the book as well. Why? Because uh, private development occurs only because they have partnership with government. Because government controls how we rebuild our communities. If if the private developer doesn't have some relationship or some um, some Interaction with government and some very supportive one, then they can't proceed with what they'll do. Right? So, you, some private developer might have some wonderful idea to to build build uh, a stadium, but if they don't get the approval for zoning, if they don't get the if they don't get now tax subsidies, which is a big enticement for development, it can't occur. And so, public private partnerships are big big factors in determining who gets to develop and what land gets to be developed and what gets developed on that land, right? Uh, and, uh, and because of the race and class structure that basically uh, girds everything that happens, these public-private partnerships are also embedded within that framework. They're not separate, right? So people who have power and resources come out of this structure that basically have lifted that power up. Organized communities are a big part of how we do community building. This is also a big part of the book. In fact, it's probably the biggest part of the book. And the reason for that is that in disinvested communities, often, often the communities aren't organized. They're very fragmented. They're fragmented because uh, a lot of the resources that have been pulled out. There's a lot of poverty. And when people have a lot of poverty... They're too. They're very busy trying to just get the you know the the, the uh, two ends to meet as we say, uh, and so people don't talk to each other. Oftentimes the communities are so fragmented that what we call social capital, what the the human capital of what allows people to feel supported in communities, aren't there. Uh, so when you get a community building project coming down the pike. If that community is not organized, if there are not groups who are informed and therefore passing information from city government into the community, if there's not this circuit of information, people get left out of the loop. People don't know what's going on. And again, this is a big part because, as I said, in disinvested communities, they often are fragmented with very poor social capital And in the particular project, uh, one of the projects we'll talk about, the 2001 East Baltimore project, this was a major reason why the development occurred as it did, because residents did not have uh, um, a coalition. They did not have bonding relationship within the community. And so the developer was able to come in and just dictate what they wanted to do. And initially there was very little resistance to that because people weren't coalesced, people weren't organized, right? So this is a really big issue in disinvested communities and how rebuilding occurs. Communities being organized and connected, huge. And then the last thing that really affects how rebuilding occurs are coalitions. So uh, there's import- it's important to have the community within the community to be bonded and bridge- bridged inside but there has to be coalitions from within the community to organizations outside and those organizations can be vast they can be government they can be nonprofits they can be different types of service organizations but uh, there's you know no man is an island um so a community can have the strongest ties within but if it doesn't have also bridging ties outside um, it's also not a community that will have a lot of power and able to uh, really um, get what it needs, basically. And again, in the two of the projects we talk about, um, we, we have the lack of organized community and the lack of coalitions. And this, these two factors not being present resulted in the way development occurred. And you'll see that when those two factors are present in one of the projects that I'll present, um, it was a very different outcome. Okay. So that's the, that's the framework for determining that we're going to work with, and that's what the book talks about. Um, and basically, as we say in the community, these are the factors that determines who gets the land. Who gets the land and what goes in the land. So, this is a busy slide, but just run through it uh, it's the, basically it 's the framework of race and class, and the the data that supports why I make the statement that racism and classism really girds all the systems in our in the United States, um, because the result of slavery uh, jim Crow era uh, the, these, this set up a hierarchy as I mentioned before. Um, not in every system, housing, employment, worship, education, you name it, we had this hierarchy of race and class segregation that that not only is historical, but the legacy of that history guides what happens still today in America, and certainly in Baltimore. Um, when we go specifically into rebuilding and housing, which is what the book is about, then we get more specific into how did that play out practically? How did that play out? Well, that played out in se- segregation of where people lived. Right? Uh, African Americans were segregated into certain communities. Those communities were then disinvested. They didn't have the same resources as white communities or communities of other ethnic groups that weren't af- weren't African American. Um, what does that mean? That means education as far as schools, recreation, housing. Every single effect in the community was therefore disinvested. Health resources, transportation. So everything was mediocre compared to, say, a community that was not African-American. And so when you talk about slum today, when you talk about the ghetto today, when you talk about the hood today, you can't talk about it in a vacuum as if it just materialized in the last five or ten years, because that is not so. And that is being very ahistoric. And we're always accusing us that we're ahistoric in America. So we need to get historic. And the historic is that Our communities today that we see when we go down to say Middle East Baltimore or some of the communities on the west side are the legacy of this investment for the last 80, 90 years. So so this is a whole legacy in the making that we're dealing with. And the reason for that is, as I said, this history of race and class. And the way uh, wealth was accumulated for people who did manage to benefit from this kind of segregation was in a lot of the way developers bought up land or bought uh, apartments or buildings and rented them to, uh, to people who could afford them and basically it became some landlords, basically not taking care of property, and we have a whole lot of that. That's a big, big issue, big issue in, uh, in East Baltimore, and not just Baltimore, but in any disinvested community in the U.S., and so what you get was an accumulation of wealth into certain, the hands of the people who had power and a disaccumulation or a, a lack of in those who didn't benefit from the system. So this is the race and class framework that, that we're talking about. It's a it's a real privilege to have uh, signing here um, tonight. Thank you. So here's a visual of what we're talking about: is uh, just in a community, say of middle, like Middle East Baltimore, just down the street from us, not even what a mile and a half or two. Uh, we have an institution like Johns Hopkins, who over the last one hundred, I think it celebrated la- recently, one hundred and thirty-eight years uh, since the construction of the hospital. You have an institution that's grown in wealth and power and prestige, not just locally, but nationally and internationally. And right next door, as you step out the door, you have a community that over the last 40, 50 years has been disinvested and have have been diminished to basically a slum, right? Um, So this is the outcome, this is what we're talking about. And I like to talk about Dr. King in this context because this history of our infrastructure of race and class uh, basically sets the economic standard for the country, right? It, it's, it basically becomes that people of color, particularly African Americans, are going to be the ones that are going to suffer disparately from this kind of, in, this kind of uh, hierarchy and this kind of system and Dr. King quoted this uh, this is this is in the 60s if you read just the underlined part depressed living standards for negroes are a structural part of the economic system in the united states if you really take that in you understand that it's it it moves us away from this blaming the victim and the mentality that we tend to hold that people of color are responsible for the, their demise But what it does is it puts it in a bigger framework, a context, an economic context, that these are systemic standards that are in place, and that people are making their way through these big systems that have been in place. And for those of us who move through it in a different way, you know, we're not wonderful by no means. There, There are just certain things that came together that coalesced. But the majority... Are the majority are still impacted by this? Yeah, and the public-private partnerships that I talk about um, that become embedded or entrenched within this framework—it's um, government-sanctioned because you know, government's part of that, and so it embeds this partnership and the the privileges the privileges of that partnership. Is uh is then a factor that comes to play when a private developer says I want to develop like a Johns Hopkins, um, because we're this book is a lot about Johns Hopkins. I haven't I don't know if I've mentioned that yet, but um, for those of you who are not familiar, uh, the book uh, is is really a big part of. Um, the big example is how Johns Hopkins has expanded over the last 100 years, and how the community next to it has been has been depleted of its resources uh, through dispossession of land. And this last bullet here that uh, redevelopment social enge- is is basically then socially engineered by these public private partnerships. Uh, they occur in abandoned communities and. These poor, these communities tend to have very poor social capital, uh, and therefore no, no power. And so this, this bottom bullet is kind of the big, um, the big take home uh, of this, of this presentation tonight, and of the book. Uh, and the rest of it, we'll just talk about the details of why why that is so. So this one, this slide. Basically, um, it's in the written form of what I've been talking about: communities that aren't organized, having disorganized communities are communities that don't have capital—a uh, different kind of capital. We we talked it. We refer to this as social capital or human capi- capital, and so they're therefore fragmented, um, and then therefore they have no power. To, to challenge anything that comes down the loop. Because I want you to think about it like this. If you're in your community, there's usually a community association. In fact, one of the tasks that I'm going to burden each one of you with when you leave tonight is you need to go home and find out what's the name of your community association, when does it meet, and when you're going to start meeting with them. Because this is what power building power in community is about. And for this not to be just this kind of intellectual discourse where I just stand up here and blah, blah, and you all just kind of fall asleep, we need to really participate in what we're going to do to make sure change happens in this country. And so I will challenge you to take that on, to do that. And you can go to my website and let me know when you do. I don't think we took names, but I might just do that at the end. Now, I'm talking about this poor social capital, so here's something for you to just kind of sink in some detail of that. Um, This is the Middle East Baltimore community, the community that sits just adjacent right outside Hopkins. Um, And I talk about the wealth of Hopkins as a big conglomerate, and I want you to look at the difference in this community right outside. I mean, we're talking, there's a whole lot of news about income inequality, just last week, the Brookings Institute released a report that Baltimore is the is a is the 10th out of 50 cities ranked in to have the highest gap in income, right? So 10 we we we, we Baltimore rank 10 out of 50 cities, the biggest cities, as having the highest income inequality, right? So that's the big context. But right here, we have to start noting, you know, when you drive and walk through neighborhoods, start noting when you go from one neighborhood to the other, how it changes, and why is that, right? And so this is one example, because Hopkins is such a dominant present in such a rich institution. Right outside, you have a community that has 70% of its children is receiving free or reduced lunch. Um, 49% of the community has not finished high school. The average income is 29000 and the unemployment rate is twice that of the city. The health status, because we have to talk about health. Um, this is a report out of Hopkins. By most measures appalling, making East Baltimore one of the least healthy communities in the United States. Okay, This is what we mean when we talk about inequality of health and wealth. Okay, And just to bring it home for you a little bit more. Um, this is Health data, health information. So accidents that you look how many what percentage of percentages of accidents in East Baltimore versus in the city versus in say Baltimore County. You can look and you can see that almost all these factors it's greater in East Baltimore. Again, when you look at the inequality and the diminished isn't the diminished investment in the community, what we find now is that health and wealth are going together. So if a community is poor, the likelihood that their health is poor is great. And so now when we talk about inequality, we don't talk just about income inequality or wealth inequality, we talk about health inequality. Because now we know that neighborhoods right next to each other, based on their socioeconomic status, they'll have 10-year difference in life expectancy. Think about that. You just walk a few blocks, and someone is expected to live until they're 65, and then two blocks down, they can live until they're 75 or 80. And This is, this is real. That data, that research was done right here in Baltimore, so that's true. Not just in Baltimore. It's true when you look around the, the United States and outside the United, United States. So how does community disinvestment result in health? So when you have the deteriorated neighborhoods, you have increased crime. So the path to leading to health is uh, poor health is that increased crime, dumping, um, you got abandoned houses, you start getting, uh, they become foci or locuses for crime, uh, you get rats, just basic things, right? These are unhealthy conditions for people to be living in. Nobody should be living in conditions like this in the United States. Well, nowhere, really, but particularly in this country. However, you just go down into Middle East Baltimore, and we've got conditions like this. Or you can go to West Baltimore. Or you can go to some areas off North Avenue. It's there. You can go to some areas off Greenmount. You know, it, it's there. That's what we just have to open our eyes more. Um, so health-wise, these, these things, these are unhealthy conditions for people live in. they lead to stress, they lead to worry. Uh, parents can't have their children out on the street after night, after dark, if there's drug dealing, because that becomes what children see. There, if there's disinvestment, there are no recreation centers. Where do kids go to for after-school programs? These are all factors that results in the, the behaviors and the well-being uh, Supermarkets pull out of communities that are disinvested, therefore you don't have a lot of fresh produce, so people buy processed foods that are, in, that are inexpensive, are a lot of canned goods, canned fruits and vegetables, a, a whole lifetime of eating like this can lead to diabetes, we know this now. Lack of exercise because they're not, uh, the infrastructure, the sidewalks are not repaired. People can't go walking. The elderly, if they're using canes, it's difficult for them to maneuver that. You know, all these practical things that if you don't live in a community like this, you don't think about, you know, because there's a disconnect. We're very separate in our lives. Um, But these are all things that result in poor health. And the last thing I want to talk about is for health, just because there's a whole chapter about health and rebuilding in this book, uh, is that the environment that a child or an early, early childhood environment, we call it, determines the health of someone when they become an adult. Therefore, if a child is, grow, is born into poverty, poverty and lives in poverty, actually we know now that even during um, pregnancy, the 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 situation that the mother is exposed to already that is having an effect on the health of that child it's already shaping the physical and mental health of that child when they become an adult All right so again connect this to the disinvestment of a community if you're growing up in a community that's divested of resources this is the this is the environment that a person is living in and that's who's raising a child All right and so what we've done is we've, we've already, uh, basically, I say, convicted another generation to poor health and poor wealth, because we still don't know which comes first: poor health or poor wealth. Is it because someone is ill that they can't go to school, finish school, and access jobs with higher income, or is it because that is it, or is it the opposite? You know, we're always chasing which came first, so we don't know. You know, does poverty which one of them c- came first. What we know is that they're definitely associated and looking for the, the reason they are. And, and, I, and I hope this is a big take-home message too. The greatest determinant of health is poverty. Okay? World Health Organization. We're not used to thinking like this. We're not used to understanding that, that, that our social factors, what the race we are, the class we we come from, the gender we are, the immigrant status, these social factors that help to determine our, our health. So we have to start thinking like this. And I talk about this because the kind of community we live in determines those social factors. And the amount of resources and the way we rebuild communities determine those resources. And so this is the big picture, Right? now I'm going to talk about those three building rebuilding projects. So um, the three projects are in East Baltimore. Uh, one is from the 1950s, the 1960s, and 2001. Uh, each one, no, two of them, the Broadway redevelopment in the Middle East are Hopkins expansion. And the second one, the Gay Street One project, is a pro- is a project where the land was not wanted by Hopkins. And the reason I include that uh, well, uh, there are two two reasons I include it is is because you really get to see the difference when a big corporate entity doesn't want the land. You really get to see what the outcomes are, and the other reason is you get to see how the community is organized and how the what the difference is. So here's a little bit of a geography for you. So the square block here, well this is East Baltimore, okay. The square block here is the first big seven acre area that Hopkins built, their first hospital in 1889. The yellow box is 2010 where they've expanded to. The green outline here is the current project, this is the 88 acres. That's currently getting uh, expanded or being being rebuilt now. The three projects I'm talking about: the first one was this area right here, the Broadway redevelopment project in the 1950s. The Gay Street One project was over here. You see, it's not included in Hopkins' footprint because Hopkins didn't want that land. And then the East Baltimore project, the Middle East Baltimore project. That's this 88 acres here. And this is, this is just a more clear cartoon diagram. I hope you all are breathing. <laughs> you know, the struggle has to be filled with joy also. Yeah. yeah, Because we've got to be in it for the long haul. Yeah. All right. So here's the factors that we talked about that influences development, race, class, power. And others. So the socioeconomic norm, which is how we would, I think we would categorize race and class, you see, because it's an infrastructure in the country, it's going to always be there. So the way we're going to affect this is going to be basically from these other factors, right? So whether or not the community is organized, what role is government playing in that process, and what coalitions are present. So in the 1950s project, the community was not organized. The government initiated the project, but it was a public-private relationship between Hopkins and the community and, and, and the developer. <coughs> the developer Hopkins and the government. And also there were no coalitions with the with the community. The Gay Street Project, again it's the same social stat status, the socioeconomic status. The community was organized. It was a different time. It was the 60s, the civil rights movement was going on. Black leadership was emerging. People were feeling more powerful. So the community was more organized. And there was coalition building going on. Also, it came right on the heels of this one. This was such an embarrassment to the city. If you look at, in the research, if you look at the, the newspaper clippings describing this, the city, the city admitted that this project was, was wrong. But it didn't matter. It was done already, right? And we'll see the, the details of that project. Also, because Hapis wasn't involved, the government actually played the role it was supposed to. It initiated, but it worked with the community. They planned with the community. There were several meetings, planning meetings, before the master plan was even developed. Very unlike what happened in here and here. In here and here, the community wasn't even involved. The community was told after the fact. Just imagine in your community where you live that you find out in the newspaper that you have to move. And that's what happened. In this project, and there's a couple of residents here tonight from the, the Middle East that, that that can speak to that. And the Middle East one that I'm talking about, initially the community was not organized, and then we organized. We formed an organization called Save Middle East Action Committee, and for eight years, this organization held this process accountable this process accountable, and build coalitions, and made changes, affected the process. It didn't change the initial plan, because that was already done. And because the city government had already approved that eminent domain would be used, and the city council representatives basically listened to what Hopkins and the mayor wanted. That's Mayor O'Malley, who's currently governor, who wants to be president. Think about that when you go to vote. <laughs> serious. This is why we continue doing what we're doing because we don't connect the pieces. Unfortunately, after the residents were relocated, there's no community anymore. Along with that, the coalition building wasn't sufficient. This this period of organizing wasn't long enough. Having been involved in organizing myself I think the biggest mistake I made as the executive director was not building enough coalition outside of the community. But it was (coughs) so difficult to build community within that we didn't have the resources of people or money or time, really, because we were chasing a dictate from the mayor and Hopkins. So those are the parameters, those factors, and how they played out in these three rebuilding projects. And here's what happened in those three projects. So for the broad, Broadway 1950s project, I call it a bait and switch because very, very much like the, the Middle East Baltimore project, the announcement to get people to move. So the announcement was made that these 54 acres people had to move was more than 1,000 families, primarily African-American, all low income. The area was considered blight at that time, urban renewal period, right? People were told that they would build affordable housing for them. If, if they were told this would, this would have been in Baltimore the first time garden-style apartments would be built for the Negro, end quote. <coughs> so people thought they had an opportunity to come back. So they would move right next door into the community that in five years would have been as blighted as the, as the one they were moving out of. That's a whole other story. The community was not involved in the planning or the decision making. The community residents were not surveyed, okay? Because you don't survey people who aren't going to be there. You don't really <coughs> need to know what they want because they don't—they're not going to be there. And the government funded. There were tax subsidies and subsidies and government dollars. Government funding came for the initial plan that said residents could return. After the plan changed, and residents couldn't return because no affordable housing was built, the funding was still sustained and even more was, was appropriated for the project. What were the outcomes? More than a 1,000 households were displaced. A graduate student dorm was built. Staff housing, which is basically mid and market rate housing, was built. Professional building, a hotel, and a shopping center. And why were these things built? Because the Hopkins community was surveyed and asked what do they want to see in this space. This is after residents were displaced and the, the demol- demolition had occurred at the Landsat Square. The Gate Street 1 project, 1960s, came on the heels of that, like I, I described. The sur- the residents were surveyed first. You should see the surveys from the 60s. I have not seen such a detailed survey done. Everything was like, what kind of houses do you want to see? Where do you want to see streets change? Everything was done. The school, the high school was planned by the community. People were hired locally to be part of the construction and the security. And before the master plan was even published, there were seven or eight meetings with the community. What was the outcome? There was affordable housing, people stayed. The first community development corporation in Baltimore came out of that project. And then we concurrent to this, the project that's ongoing now. It's the same kind of thing. 8,000 jobs are promised, a bioscience park. To date, there's been like maybe 1,500. That's 13 years later. The local hire has been no more than 10%. Local hire. This project was said, was said to, was going to revitalize the community. But there was no preparation of the workforce so they could take advantage of the jobs that will be there. There was no, there was no planning by the community. There was lots of tax subsidies, a whole lot of tax subsidies. and eminent domain was used to declare people off the land this time. So people who owned their property had to go, it didn't matter if it was gonna be a private person developed or organization developing it. As I said, min- minimal jobs, no workforce preparation. Hopkins was surveyed and the community they wanted to be there was surveyed. The community was never surveyed. Actually, we surveyed the community. The community organization surveyed the community. To find out, do you want to stay? You learned that more than 70% of the people wanted to stay. But when they announced this plan and started to relocate okay people, they didn't even bother to ask people if they wanted to stay. They were just given the victim that they had to go. And the school, the current school that you'll hear so much about, I'm sure in the next five years, that it proves itself, the Henderson Hopkins School, was planned by the state park stakeholders. Community was invited to those meetings. I was there only after that was decided. And the outcome, more than 800 households displaced. A graduate student, I want you to compare the outcome here and the outcome here. Huh? More than 800 households displaced. A, a new graduate student tower. Now that we're in 500 units. Staff housing. We don't call it staff housing today. We call it mid and market rate housing. But what that does is it assures a certain group of people will live there. Professional, we don't call it a professional building. We call it now a bioscience building. But, but it's the same thing, right? It's where we are technologically. A new hotel subsidized by the government. By the government. The design of this, this hotel so subsidized by the government. Now you know who's going to be going to this hotel. Shopping center and retail. A 7-Eleven is built that doesn't accept food stamps. That doesn't accept food stamps in a community where more than 70% of the children are are benefiting from reduced meals. And this is for the community. Think about it. Think about the injustice, the inconsistency, of the rhetoric and the action. Because this is what I want you to leave with today. What are you going to do about it? I'm doing my part. I'm talking with you. And we're going to talk about that. A 7-acre park. We wonder why this park wasn't put there before. But a seven-acre park is also getting subsidized by the government. And we wonder why is the seven-acre park going there when all—all all these rec centers are being closed, all the parks that, that presently exist are not getting funded. How come we're getting this huge seven-acre park in this community? And the school—the question still remains: Who's going to attend the school when a community resident? gets an invitation to apply for their children three days before the deadline, you have to wonder, who is the school for? But when the dean of education from the school goes to Hopkins several months before the deadline for application, and talks about the wonder of the school and to encourage students and staff to send their children there, you have to wonder, what do we want the school to look like? And it's going to be up to all of you all Keep track of this. Because I'm not gonna write another book about this. <laughs> <laughs> so here's just some photos to close up. This is the 1950s project after the thousand families were displaced and the buildings were demolished. Hopkins is over here. So we're looking west here. And I juxtapose that with the current project, where people used to live here. Also, it's not an aerial view, so you can't see. It's not as. Uh, it's not. A, you cannot see the whole, eighty-eight uh, eight acres. But this is the first two. This is within the first thirty-three acres. The the first phase coming north, from Hopkins or Madison Street. And this is trying to give you a better view of it. Looking south, this is that same view. Again, this is like going now we're walking west. Mm-hmm. Here's that seven eleven and talk, talking about now we're walking and looking north. This this seven eleven is in the first life science part. And this is where these buildings have gone down already. In fact this is where the new school is mm-hmm. all here. So now you're here. You're looking at this building here, this, this, this building here. So now you're looking
2: west. west.
1: And I juxtaposed these two to show you. Um, <laughs> this is the 1950s staff building that was built. Um, this building was called a compound by residents after it was built. Why was it called a compound? Because after people were displaced, they built they built a, it's not funny at all right they built a wall around this and residents who used to live here were not able to walk through here anymore and so this is why I call it the compound this is now I call this is what I call the compound because we're building houses that start in two hundred thousands, right we know who that's going to house and now we don't have a wall to off this area, this huge 88 acre. What we have is off the police people on segways. We have security cameras, okay? We have a different kind of way to separate ourselves from the other. And this is, again, this is for, this is to show, this is the groundbreaking for the, the school dorm that was built back in the 50s. And then this is the groundbreaking for the school dorm that was built a couple of years ago. And it's the same players, right? The public-private partnership. Colors have changed, but the equation stays the same. Mm -hmm. You know, you got the mayor, you got the mayor, you got the CEO of Hopkins, you got a couple Hopkins people here, you got the developer, you got the developer. You have the lieutenant governor here, right? So here we got lieutenant governor running for governor. Think about it when you go to vote. Public-private partnerships. This is what this is what people are doing. These are the details of what people are doing, and we have to think: Are we okay with these kinds of injustices and unethical behavior? Are we okay with the value system of who we place in, in power? We're okay with it. It's all right. Bernard Jack Young, City Council President, Head of uh, CEO of BDI. So the players are the same. People who are deciding the lives of those without power—they're all the same. This is a 7-Eleven that had no food stamp, so it's interesting. We raised this issue. I, I wrote about it on my website, and then they took the no food sign down, no food stamp sign down, but they still don't accept food stamps. Yeah. And so here is that slide again, uh, and now you understand maybe the images and how race, class, and power affects rebuilding our communities in America. That's all, folks.
3: I wanted to ask, what happens when the, um, the people are forced to move out of their communities? Um, like, what if they don't have enough money to um, to move to a new location? Or the, um, Do they receive the money from the government? Or um, I want to understand what happens when the people are forced to move out their communities.
1: OK. Great question. So, with the use of eminent domain, because it's a government subsidized and it's a government taking of land, there's a law called a. Um, someone here remember it? It's a URA. Uh, I can't remember what URA means, um, but it's called a URA. It's from the 1950s when government started moving people out of their communities with urban renewal. With the urban renewal, uh, they have to provide money for people to get into another house. So, uh, and they have to provide assistance for people to get there. So in the case of this project they also had to provide uh, money to match the housing the, the square foot house amount that someone was living in. They have There are certain rules you have to move into an area that is socioeconomically better than the one you're moving out of. Because that has, you know, you're taking land, and so the people have to benefit, uh, and and you have to help with relocation costs. Uh, what we learned in this current project was the law, as it was written since the 50s, was going to be the same law that would be used for relocation assistance for this project, and they. They also weren't going to change the amount of dollar for cost of living since that time, and I'm not exaggerating. Um, It had to go to lawyers for them to reassess and figure out what the comparable amount would be in 2002 in order to bring us current. But as I said, that that was not part of the initial plan, and also where people could relocate initially they could only get these benefits if they relocated within East Baltimore. Again, that was challenged because basically that's legal, that's, se- that's segregation. You can't do that. You can't tell people they can only go certain places, especially if you're kicking them out of their, their property. And that was changed as well. Again, that came with struggle, that came with community organized and challenging.
2: I'm looking at the racial structure. Um, that existed and that still exists in Baltimore. Um, what can we do as young people, um, the next generation of activists and advocates um, coming up in Baltimore, what can we do to kind of break down that racial barrier that exists?
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. Uh, it's a question I struggle with a lot. Um, what am I doing to change that? And and what have I been doing as an adult? Um, I think one of them is something like this: you know, having a, a intergenerational and diverse group of people willing to come and listen to this. You know, I mean, the title of this book is Race, Class Power and Organizing in East Baltimore." There are only certain peoples are people are going to even continue opening that book after they read the title. Am I correct? You are correct. Yeah. We're all correct on that. So I think all of us have to have the the courage to face the fact that this does exist. I think I think we we don't even acknowledge that we live in a racist and classist society. Many of us, um, you know, I've been lecturing a lot with young undergraduate students, and I'm shocked. And maybe that's because I'm a person of color, but I'm shocked at the lack of awareness of racism when I, when I talk with them. Um, so I think just the discussion, as people of color, um, we shouldn't bear the burden of educating our non-of-color brothers and sisters. Um, but we certainly can lift up the topic and bring it to the front. As non-people of color, I think it's imperative that we do open our eyes and recognize that race and class injustice exists today, it may not exist in the form that it existed during slavery or during Jim Crow, uh, but it exists today it's it may be more subtle it's one of the reasons that the the, the cover of this book um, has this image here this image this image is intentional you know and when I when this book was published. One of the first organizations, race, um, Baltimore Racial Justice Action, contacted me and asked me if they could use this image for their workshops. I said, "Of course." And I said, "How come?" They said, "Because they they do trainings on racism, and when they go into these nonprofits and when they go into these institutions and where there's a majority of white people, even though we're in a black city." People look at them like their eyes are crossed when they talk about racism still exists. And they were so happy to have an image like this so they can say, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about racism and how it exists. Now, this is a chance, right? This was a Baltimore Sun reporter of all Baltimore Sun. Um, Baltimore Sun, who actually captured this and had it in the newspaper during a community meeting where the then-CEO of EBDI was telling the community leader what not about the community having affordable housing. And just imagine that this white man felt that he was empowered in a black community to bring that kind of body action and words to a community leader. The audacity of racism is really... Fascinating. Fascinating if it wasn't so oppressive. So, what do you, I I may not have answered your question specifically, but I'm just telling you that stuff's real and you have to start talking about it.
2: I was wondering more along the lines of like actions, Mm. you know, because I find that there are like a lot of amazing like protesting things you can do, but until you get like Under the surface Into acting Then not much will get accomplished Right like you'll go out and protest And somebody will give you You know something to calm you down And Mm -hmm. sit you down And that'll be that right But the problem won't be solved The racism Mm -hmm. won't be stopped right Um, So I was wondering more along the lines of action
1: You talking about action for the individual Like as a community like what
2: can we do like as a community to because i don't know i feel like it's always like racism is here you know racism is at our doorsteps, the school to prison pipeline um i read the new jim crow like all these different things and it's like well you know it's here and we should be conscious that it's here but what should we do
1: well i think Okay, so politically what we do is, if you're of age, you vote, right? And you look at the voting record of the people who are currently in power or in city council or mayor or whichever, and, and you look at the, the voting records of the ones who may want to go or switch some office, and you vote people out who are not doing things they ought to do, and you vote people in who look like they may bring change. I think this is the if you if you're in a workplace if you're in a school setting and you have administrators who are acting badly, and when I say badly, that could be anything. I think one has to challenge that I don't think we step up enough you know uh, I don't think that we feel supported enough by our colleagues around us to really speak to power and when I say speak to power, I mean challenge power challenge and, and continuously challenging it's 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 a struggle right and that's why I say we have to have joy because it's been around for a lot of years. It's not going to go away during, unfortunately, my lifetime. But maybe in your lifetime it will, because you've probably got 20 or so ears on me to, to fulfill, right? Yeah. So I mean, we want to see that change. And again, I think the more we talk about it, the more we're not fearful and the more the responsibility for non-people of color to just open their eyes. And, and again, I, I'm saying, when you're driving through neighborhoods, you got to start noting. you got to open your eyes and note. You can't just like... Um, you can't just let it... You can't just be in a daze anymore. The haze days are over, you know. I mean, the, the inequality is just growing so vast. I don't think we have the privilege. I mean, it's called white privilege for a reason. It's a privilege to do many things, and one of them is to be ignorant. And so, do we have that privilege of ignorance anymore? Well, we never did, really. All right.
4: Marcella, it's uh, good to see you. Um, when you look at the the expansion plans from the 50s, with respect to Johns Hopkins, and you compare them to the expansion that the the process and outcomes that happened just a few years ago, I mean, it's clear they're almost identical. Mm. So are we, or are you saying that we've actually gone back to 50s-like mentality in terms of how we treat the poor and oppressed in this country?
1: Well, I think you know the answer to that because you <laughs> you asked it, right? And I think there's only one way that income inequality could have grown to the extent that it has and that health disparities are at the place that it is, is that we have continued to ignore and separate those who are so different or we feel are so different from us. The root of the problem here in this particular expansion is that when Johns Hopkins feels threatened, and when I say threatened, I mean security issues, people being robbed, Take cell phones being taken, rape, okay? When things like this start to happen and come closer, we don't try to understand. In this haze, we just drop into what we have been socialized to think is okay, which is like, if they're different from us, they're the ones that are perpetuating these violence against us, and we have to separate ourselves more. I think that's what you see here. So what do you see? You see then a huge expansion that displaces the group of people who we think are to blame for our security risk, and we populate it with people who look like us. And so what what I tell people is this. I'm very clear. In these 88 acres, they're not going to be all Johns Hopkins building, but what they will be are buildings that are inhabited by people who they feel safe with around them people who don't threaten them, people who are lighter skinned, people who aren't poor, people who don't act different, people who don't drag a, car, a, a shopping cart behind them, because that's also different for people who think that they're better than... So I don't know if we've gone back. I certainly hope we haven't gone back. But what I know is we haven't moved forward much. Because when you can see the same outcomes like this in 50 years being perpetu- perpetuated by an institution that has grown in greater prestige and power, then, then I think that we've not taken many steps.
4: I just have one more quick question. <clears throat> when you look at the, um, the, the income inequality, the health inequality um, in East Baltimore, and you, and you look at the, the, the rate of, of violence and homicide mm-hmm. and, and crime, what is, the, what is the effect on the children? And have you noticed in any of your, your research a correlation between um, post-traumatic stress dis- disorder <laughs> in soldiers and, and, and in children who live in these environments?
1: Yeah, I, I personally haven't noticed that. But there is research that has compared exactly what you just said, which is that the trauma experienced by living in communities that are prone to violence like some of our communities in Baltimore, are similar to the trauma for someone who is returning from war. So the, the, the particular violence may be different, but the, the way the body stores that trauma, the, the nerve root, the path that results in some mental disorder later, is the same. So the initial, the, the, the input may be different. It, you know, Over there in some other country, right here down the street, but the way the mind and the body processes, processes it results in similar outcomes. So we're seeing similar outcomes like post-traumatic stress disorder. that And it's no different, right? So if you look at... This is why I talk about the health so much is because if we're having children growing up in these neighborhoods, if we're having mothers who are going through the same ordeal while they're pregnant, as far as I'm concerned, you've already dictated that child's future. Of course it can change if the environment's going to change and they're going to not be continuously in a community or neighborhood like that. So it can change. We know that it can change. But if we don't have the infrastructure to assure that that change occurs, which we haven't done, we've we've not been that interested in that. We've not been that interested in these populations. We prefer to just marginalize them, judge them, and move them out of our way. Because when you drive up to school at Hopkins, you don't want folks to have to be seeing that. I mean, that's the truth. You know, as a student at Hopkins, this is the truth. When I was a student, at first in orientation, I was told, don't go outside certain boundaries. It's not safe. This is real. And this happens still today. So a lot of it is about this separation, you know, this, this othering. If we, if we other people, they're not like us, then it justifies us treating them badly and differently. There's, oh, there's, a, there's a lady right here. Mine is, good Mine is more about the
5: political issue. Since mm-hmm. 2004,
6: we've had a lot of uh, elections. And when you look at the election polls, we don't have additional politicians to put in seats. You look at the ballot... Normally, for some of them, since 2004, if you have one position to choose, that's the only person you have. If you have another seat or something, you have five positions to choose, that's all you have. How are we going to get new people in if we have no people? And the other thing at that time, usually what happens at that time around Baltimore City, Maryland, is that the elections are very quiet. And like it comes election day, are we going to have any election? No one is talking about it. you're not seeing a lot of um, pamphlets, nothing in the mail. until that day comes, and then all of a sudden on the news or on your phone, after the almost after the fact, then you are reminded there is, is an election, or if you don't request you move, you don't want your voters' registration place to change, your polling place to change. Some of the people at Board of Elections will decide to take it upon themselves and change your address. How do you suppose that in East Baltimore, which I've spent most of my time in East Baltimore for over 50-something years, I am a child that's from another country that was very much a part of the Urban Renewal Project in the 1960s. Some of why it wouldn't work because some of the blacks and the community was constantly sabotaging. Some of the people moved, they bought, they purchased houses, they went to other communities where majority of the property that any of us know from other, other countries, most of them were owned by either Jewish families prior to, or white, fam- what you call white families prior to. Some of them didn't want the black people to live in those neighborhoods, so they would go physically drag them out of them places they just purchased, and drag them back to where they were. They would do the same thing if they changed churches. They would go physically to those churches, pull those black people out of that church, you going back to where you used to be. If they knew you lived in the projects, they'd drag you all the way back to the... You could be over there in Charles Village, mansion is paid for, everything is for you. Then you have an attorney... And with the medical field, Johns Hopkins was guilty of it too, where they set up things where you have to keep coming to the hospital, they keep grabbing you off the street, and you build up all this medical bill. Then you have the, the attorney, he showed, he showed up, he's from the 19, uh, late 60s, 1970s, to start filing judgments against people. That stops you from being able to purchase a home. Because that's some of what they were doing during the urban renewal. Some of that stuff has come back up in northeast Baltimore against people like myself in these past six or seven years. The same kind of crimes. So how do you suppose politically we're going to get new politicians if the ballot majority of the ballots, it is if there are however many seats you have that's available, that's the only amount of people you have. You don't have any access.
1: Yeah. So this is a perfect time for where audience discusses and offers the solutions. I mean, I've sort of said what I think about the political process already, how I think it needs to change as far as voting people out. Now I'm going to turn it on you all. You you heard this lady's questions and her and her difficulties. Someone have an idea of how we're going to change that politically? I have a
5: statement. If you, right. young lady, I, 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 hear what you're saying. All right. I think we can forge partnerships. I think you can go back into the area and take whatever skill you have and just take one of the places and make it work, and and encourage everybody that you know to go back into your community and take it back over. Now I know that doesn't sound sounds easy, but that's a start. There are sit down, please. There are, a part of a part of the structure that I see that's happening in Baltimore is that we have a leadership that's trying to encourage ten thousand families to move into a city and, and that's code. That's code for new people to come as opposed to working with the people that are here, that have been damaged by what has gone on here. But this is this is this is hegemony. This is stuff that they do all over the world. This is nothing new. But I, I want to get into the blaming element because... And, and also,
1: could you specifically talk about this, this young lady's question? Well,
5: that's what I'm saying. I want to get into the blaming element of it. Yeah, let's talk about but, the
1: change issues.
5: But there was, a, there was a whole host of middle-class black people that were the first movers out of these communities, and these were the structure people. These are the folks who had the information or the ability to trans- translate some of what was going on in these community meetings. And so we can't leave them out of the process. We can't leave them out of it. Now, of course, with big data, and we can't forget about that, the era that we're in right now, that we, that, and we can't forget about the foreclosing. We can't forget about the word like malaise, that we've been through since 1991, when they had the World Trade Center. Sit down, stop, son. Stop. So this is a scientific, and this is what I like about what you have done, because oftentimes community-based people have problems when we don't speak in terms of a scientific approach. They stem us at that intersection, because they will say, well, that's conspiracy theory, you know. We didn't do that on purpose, but currently I'm working in West Baltimore where if you draw a straight line from Hopkins, you'll intersect to the Mark Station, another place where on purpose they are beginning to plan. However, that didn't start just yesterday. That started like 40 years ago when they came through and disturbed a middle-class community and then these folks, unfortunately, went into blockbusting. And a, a lot of folks that live out in Randallstown, or you know, they moved from what they thought was what was better to what was worse. And I've, I, I was kind of blown away because you know, they, they moved from a town where they had some control politically, as she was saying, to an area where they no longer had as much polit- political um, pressure because of gerrymandering. And that's another element that's going on with regards to the people in Baltimore. On another level, when you're talking about politics in the state of Maryland, it's about trying to decentralize the population of black people who, for, who traditionally in Baltimore made, made it possible for, the, for governors. So now they want to, they want to um, um, disrupt that population and disrupt the way in which that voting pattern is. To the tune that the this is sad, because we're talking now about the the health and the and, and, and the, the intersection of health. Currently, they're using zoning and, and, and the health department to close down liquor stores, per se, in the inner city under the ruse that people are laudering in these neighborhoods. But they're just coming back now to scare away the rest of the populations in certain areas where they are. I called the the uh, health department up on it. I wrote to the health department uh, head and said, "If you really, truly are about um, the health, then why not have a campaign on the 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 amount of high alcohol that's being sold at cheap prices in those communities that's actually doing the destruction and not necessarily them standing on the corner." So. It's the policymakers and the folks that are there that's doing things that really not for the population except for this in town outtown movement. And it's the same in town outtown movement that changed uh, Charles Street from being a two way street to a one way street to take people right out to Towson. And where we are now is that the in town is coming back the outtown is coming back. But I I will say this my challenge to the outtown that's coming back. We do have, in this state, a beautiful project. What they did in Columbia, in terms of having the mixing of the class, in terms of having a very structured community, I think it's something that could very well be modeled here in Baltimore City, in the sense that the resource people need ought to be seated in and around people who don't have resource. That's how we're going to make change. We can't make change out of having the same folks in the same condition we move to the same condition it's, it's, it's it, it doesn't work so columbia a, a gentleman i believe if i'm not right rouse came up out of baltimore is that not true right so so rouse did that i mean and so we have a way in which if we can get resource people to come into these areas and have a partnership like she was saying because you know, we, we sometimes forget that the government is made up of us too. It's not like it's, it's, it's not, I'm sorry, but it's not like we don't have a way in which to get them to work for us and create a partnership with them as well. So that's, that's my challenge. to. Okay, you. Let's uh, let some other people speak yeah, and ask questions.
1: Some more Anyone questions here.
0: There's
1: a young man here and a young man. Here.
7: Um, by the way, great presentation, and I hope you're selling the book. Are you selling the book now? Or? I am selling the book. Oh, there? okay, cool. I'll, I'll buy it. Well, I think that um, – I mean, that's my solution. That's one of my solutions to a young lady is uh, you need new leadership, new effective leadership. I think at some point we have to realize that, you know, and I don't want to hurt any feelings, the current leadership that we have, whether it is community organized – well, not, I can't say community organized, but in electoral politics – or some folks who want to call themselves uh, leaders who are in the news all the time or on radio stations and TV shows may or may not be that effective. You need new, real leadership. And you and communities do have to be organized. I think one of the biggest impressions I cut out of this presentation right here is that you have to be organized. You know, even if, you have, if you're not organized as a community, these things will happen. Now, you know, I, I teach at Cobb State University. And one thing, you know, I use things like that for my students, and, you know, I always have to, I do writing responses, and, you know, these subjects, and I have to say, what is, how would you respond to this particular idea, and I just let, let them discuss it, I let them go at it, some folks get stuck, some folks go at it, and then, you know, but, you know, but it's, it, you know, but that's one of the things that we kind of need there is new effective leadership and new ideas that has to be updated. You know, I think a lot of times we're looking towards history. I teach history, and people look towards and say, "Well, let's do, let's march in the 1960s." At some point, we have to realize that marching may not just be effective. Voting may not be the only answer. You have to do real organizing and come up with new, concrete ideas to deal with a to deal with not just a city but a nation where we don't make anything; everything's made overseas. Uh, everything's in decay. We're going through gentrification. I mean, the downtown is expanding. Well, you know, I like the you know, downtown, but it's expanding more and more. You know, so you have to come up with new ideas of how do you deal with this. And, um, and of course, about organizing and see where the people are at. Yes.
1: This gentleman here. Um, really, you know, oh, to address with
8: the young lady over there said and some other people in here. Um, I think what is imperative is that communication and eye-opening kind of happens between the has and the have-nots that we're talking about. Um, I think just as important as it is for the privilege to understand, you know, kind of how the city reached the level of decay in some areas that it has, and how some people have become disenfranchised. I think those people also have to see stuff like this presentation to see kind of what's happening to them, what's happening to their neighborhood. Because once they identify that, I think that they have a better opportunity of saying, no, this is not what I want. I want to do something about this. Um, voting records, like you mentioned earlier, is a great way to determine, are these people really for us? Are they speaking in the best interest of the city yeah. and of its residents? And I think it kind of has to happen in parallel with one another. I mean, commun- communication on, on both sides needs to happen. I um, participate in Bike Party. You know, some of you guys have heard of this. You gather somewhere. Everybody, you know, hops on a bike and we ride around the city. And one of the things I noticed um, doing that last year—I mean, the majority of the people on bike party are white—and um, we go through some some neighborhoods in Baltimore City that a lot of people on bike party would have said they would never have been there. Otherwise, majority black uh, neighborhoods. And you just see this this kind of eye-opening experience firsthand. You see people like, oh, these people are just like us. I mean, people are cheering. High fiving, and you know, really, to me, that was a metaphor of kind of what has to happen in the cities is bringing the uh, uh, different parts and different elements of the city together, so they can realize, you know, we're really all very similar. We have different circumstances, you know, we kind of have different experiences, but you know, together, I mean, you know, it can be awesome. And, and I think that is, you know, that was kind of my experience with that. And I thought, you know, that is something that, you know, there are a lot of lessons that can be taken from something. As leisure as that, that could really be applied to kind of, you know, the big picture and how we bring the two sides together and have the conversation and kind of, you know, get everybody's eyes open and together.
3: Can I just make one uh, recommendation, suggestion? This gentleman and I both want to make the same one, and that's a suggestion for the young woman. Look at the candidates, for instance, for governor. And, frankly, maybe Dr. Gomez can't say vote for Heather Mazur, But um, I I think a lot of people, if we would all get out, this group, if we would all just get out and work for Heather Mazur, not the the guys who are in the pipeline, even if one is brown and one is Jewish or whatever, you know, she's she's white, she's uh, way younger than I am, and she has a different lifestyle, but um, man, if you listen to her talk, she's got the ideas, and that's that's a great way to start. Let's all just support her. Work for her.
2: Um, I was thinking about your question and about like um, going to the ballots and saying like there's no people, like just looking at the different people in the ballot. There's no competition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I used to ask, <laughs> ask myself about that a lot. Like, man, these are like the same people from last year, the same people from the year before that. You know, the same city council people, the same, you know, people all over, right? And, like, my question to myself was, like, why aren't the amazing people that live next door to me, or down the block from me, or around the corner from me, or those people who have been moved out of their communities, why don't they run, right? Um, And it just kind of pushed me to want to take that leadership position. because, like, if you see an issue and you can fix it better than somebody else, then you gotta step up. Um, so, just looking at that, um, I just wanted to say that to your statement about the, that.
1: I think I think that's really true too. I think one of the things that we've noticed in the last year is that we have to start training people to be. Uh, To run for politics because it's exactly as you say, and you say there's nobody on the ballot, so when you go, you just do the lesser of two evils. At least that's what I do, Um, you know, because we can't take voted for granted. You know, remember ancestors couldn't vote, so we've got to. So that's one thing. First, we got to get out there and vote. The percentage of voting is so low in our community, it's just, it's crazy. So, so we could even just start by getting out there and vote and taking somebody with you. You know, it's like these small organizing steps that you can do that you'd, you wouldn't imagine how, how big of an effect it has. So you go vote and you take someone with you. And then the second thing is we start thinking, when you do notice that young person that you wonder, why aren't they in a leadership position, you start cultivating leadership. And this is something that we've been talking about for the last year, is forget about waiting for that leader to appear or materialize. We are the leaders we're waiting to see happen. That means you are the leader. Every single one of you are the leader. Your children are the leader. Your daughters and brothers and sisters are the leader. Your parents are the leaders, right? And that means you just have to cultivate that leadership. And that means we have to start taking, ex- taking responsibility for government it the time of the past when you elected leaders that represented us, those are not here anymore, folks. You want to represent that means you got to step up and represent this is This is where we're at. This is the only way we're going to see change. and I think the fact that the, some of the questions and some of the answers are all this are coming back to the same thing. I think it speaks to that. Is political leadership is lacking, or what we see as the political leadership for some of us in this room are lacking? And therefore, if we're not seeing a harvest to choose from, we got to start sowing seeds that we can harvest ourselves. Right? This young lady right here. Um, yes, thank you. Thank you for
3: coming.
1: Um, My I pleasure. This
3: young lady, um, absolutely. If you're feeling like you need to be the one or that you would like to step out there, I say step out there mm-hmm. and um, begin to garner the support and work and diligently work and um, I believe wholeheartedly that you'll get the support because at least the people in this room are saying, we're looking for for you. We're looking for young people. I myself grew up in Oliver. And um, rather than, than, than go... On my own into organizing, I would rather walk through the Kalahari with a toothpick. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. But you have youth on your side and you have the knowledge on your side. And um, I honestly would encourage you to continue to do that. And um, back to what this lady was saying about um, the politicians or the people who are running, um, I would I would want anyone who is considering stepping out there and being a vehicle for change um, not to wait until six weeks before election time, not to wait until um, even six months before election time. But if you're interested and you want to be out there, begin to start talking to people and begin to start laying a foundation right away. Because people don't want to vote for someone who they just saw. Or they get really upset when, when someone is um, um, running for office again and again and again. And you never see them until it's it's time to go to, to the polls. Um, And for you, Ms. Gomez, I just have a a quick couple of questions. I missed the first part of your presentation, so if you've answered it already, then I'll wait and get my answer uh, at another time. Um, But it seems – my first question, and I'll ask them all, and then I'll I'll let you answer – I what are the expansion? What are the boundaries for this um, Middle East expansion project? Um, and I ask that because I live right on the outskirts. I live right at, at Federal and, and Broadway, and my family has been in their home for um, the house turned a hundred years old um, in twenty thirteen, and my family's been in the house for sixty five of those years. Um, my brother's there. He's seventy five, and. Um, I have some concerns for him in terms of you know what may or may not happen and and I don't know, and I haven't been able to speak with someone um who can give me the answer so i'm I'm not sure if you're living on the if if we're on the periphery of it or you know how that's going to definitely um impact us and then um it seems as though when I went to ask these questions, it seems as though Hopkins has formed an umbrella coalition over all of the community associations like Oliver, like Middle East, like Broadway East, where they're kind of watching um watching them and nothing that they nothing goes on unless um I think it's the East Baltimore Development Corporation knows about it and so I'm just wondering if that's true or if that's something I've made up in my own head and my last question has to do with young developers I've been talking with um young developers and they have indicated to me that they have tried to go in and purchase some properties in and around Um, this area this expansion area and they've been blocked so is Hopkins what are we up against are they actually going in and and making moves to stop um, other entities from from building and developing in the community
1: sure please
7: South Monument Street Mm -hmm. on the west, Broadway on the north, North Avenue, and the east, Patterson Park. So, all that area within the next five to ten years will be redeveloped, and you will not see many black faces in that boundary because they're going to all be gone. Why
6: did it take so long? They were doing that. They were saying, Hopkins, when I was five years old, I'm 50 or 55, i gonna put it just like that. When I'm five years old, the story was that those on the, what they call the Northeast Corridor on East North Avenue, those houses was gonna be brought up by they were gonna be brought up by Johns Hopkins Hospital. I grew up, we had more dilapidated. I grew up on East North Avenue, North and Chester. We had more dilapidated property by the time I got in my 20s on that corridor. Hopkins wasn't buying anything up there. It's something years later, we had more property. I bought a property there. I pay as an international person, property owner, for my property. I pay for caretaking in the city. What the city did was that they allowed my property to fall apart. When you pay internationally, you have to pay more money into that property. People are, suppo- are supposed to maintain that property. There's not supposed to be any dilapidation. somebody stealing your windows, somebody, your property getting bored out. It's supposed to be just as if you still live there.
7: Well, here's the issue. Here's the issue you need to understand. All the stuff you said mm-hmm. makes a whole lot of sense. Unless you are part of that private government partnership, who has their own agenda, and they will express that agenda by whatever means necessary.
6: I, in the 1700 block of East North Avenue, I'm gonna tell you I could have afforded more than the properties that I purchased, but I could only buy one property <coughs> because they said the other landowners, property owners, they were absentee owners. They didn't want to sell their property. That's
2: all the thirty the 40 years about. I'm just saying.
1: Let me can I can saying. I add something in here? So just just to just to kind of stick to the data, the eighty eight acre project, the one that's currently ongoing, the one that's gone going now, um, the order, the borders are all the same as you mentioned, except for the northern border. The northern border is actually the railroad track, Preston Street as it goes north. That's that's what this current EBDI project border is now north avenue has always been floated as the northern boundary of where hopkins does want to expand so as but as far as this project you know if we stick to the data it stops at preston but but it is true that EBDI the quasi development entity that's doing the the, the development has purchased and has acquired some properties outside of that 88-acre process. Um, In regard to the question about uh, Hopkins overseer, you didn't use those words, but I'm using those words intentionally. Um, It it is just that, right? So um, what happens and what a lot of my research has shown over the last 20 years is that um, there's so much fragmented community groups in East Baltimore that in, uh, I don't remember what year, Pam or John can help me with this, maybe in 1995 uh, an organization called HebCac was formed, Historic East Baltimore Coalition for Thank you, Community Action Community. community action. Right, HEPCAC was formed. That was formed when the empowerment zone monies came into being. I don't know if you remember, this was in the 90s. The empowerment East Baltimore is one of the empowerment zones. HEPCAC was formed uh, and Hopkins was a big player, a co-leader in this organization. And it invited existing community organizations in the area to be a part of that board. Now, that board is, a, is an interesting board because the people who really have power running the thing is Hopkins. And Hebcock is kind of the big um, organization that sort of keeps a handle on what um, is going on. And the reason I can speak very um, directly about this is when we organized SMIAC, um, we met resistance from existing organizations that were there that didn't want to see a real free organization form and some of the existing ones, Hebcock being one of them, uh, was one of those organizations that uh, challenged what we were doing. Because we were really challenging Hopkins. We weren't inviting the kind of participation that Hopkins wanted to have involvement with. Um, so, Let's make this the last
9: question. Okay. I actually have an action to end with. Oh, excellent. So um, I actually thought you guys look much younger than you do. I thought you were like high school age kids. So that's. A compliment <laughs> but um what i was one thing I th- that i think you guys could do or that people should do um In terms of education, in terms of the Hopkins Henderson School. Mm -hmm. One thing that um, Ms. Gomez noted in her presentation is there still isn't an answer about the lottery system and who's going to have access to this school. If you as young people want to do something, I think something that would be great would be to go down to the community and organize all the single mothers who live down there who were told that their child was going to have access to this school because it was a community school and they were not explained how the lottery system works through Baltimore city and they were not explained that there was a tier and that you're going to be at the end of the tier after all the hopkins people and after all the other people who had been displaced for their kids to go to that school it would be awesome to organize them it would be awesome to have a meeting and ask someone from hopkins to come and explain how they came up with their tier and why these people's kids can't go there it would be awesome because there's a new superintendent or ceo at Baltimore City for him to come down and explain why we have so many educational disparities in Baltimore City, even though Baltimore County has one of the best school systems in the country. Those are things that I think you guys can put pressure on people for and get something done, and I'll be more than happy to help you. So (laughs) that's a plan, I think, is something we should do, and we have to start on it now. We can't wait till the next lottery system rolls around because then all the slots will be filled again and all the slots will be filled again, and next thing you know, none of those kids will ever have access to that school. So that's something that in my head as we were talking, I was thinking that's something we could work to get actually moving.